Hello, and welcome to the Communication Solution Podcast. Here at IFIOC, we love to talk communication. We love to talk motivational interviewing, and we love talking about improving outcomes for individuals, organizations, and the communities that they serve. Today, we've got Casey Jackson on the line, John Gilbert, and I'm Tammy. Welcome to the conversation. All right, hello and welcome everyone to another conversation with us here at IFIOC. We have some very special guests today, Diana and Michelle, and they reached out to us uh, on our Am I in Everyday Facebook group, uh, and that is what has led to them now getting to join us today. So if you're uh, interested, you can check that out, see the community that's developing there. And uh, more importantly, today we want to honor what Diana and Michelle brought up. That's going to seemingly be a pretty rich, interesting uh, conversation um, that's going to get into self disclosure in motivational interviewing and um, aspects of that, as well as a lot of other components that run deeper than that, that Diana, we were just talking about with that seem to be very, very interesting. So I'm really looking forward to the conversation. So if you wouldn't mind, Diana, just introducing yourself a little bit of, you know, some of the things with, with your profession, how you're applying it and what came up for you to kind of inspire the particular question you asked, and then maybe we can point to Michelle and then dive in from there. Oh, fantastic. Well, thanks so much for having us here today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So yes, my name is Diana and I work for the Rehab Center of Children in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Uh, we are a medical clinic that provides support for children and families with disabilities. And some of the work that we do, or all of the work that we do, um, we are always striving to improve our practice in terms of cultural safety and sensitivity so that all the families and children that come into our center feel supported and safe and, and welcome here. As we continue to learn and strive towards excellence in providing that culturally appropriate care, we are learning about communication and we practice and we learn about motivational interviewing and we uh, feel quite confident in, in how successful and positive motivational interviewing is as a style in terms of working with children and families. And it, it came in... Um, at a time when we were receiving some teachings, we have a, an elder in residence who provides some guidance to our staff. And this issue of disclosure had come up and it just kind of piqued some curiosity for me um, in motivational interviewing. What I've learned, and I'm certainly no expert, um, but what I've learned is um, you know, that we would tend not to offer a lot of personal information or we wouldn't tend to speak from our own personal experiences, um, but rather might refer to the experiences of, of other clients or other folks that we've worked with as a way of kind of sharing information with families. And that has always fit with me. I'm a social worker by trade and that is consistent with my training. So that has, has felt positive and appropriate. But through this teaching with our, our elder, which was just so helpful and in, insightful, she was sharing with us that in order to build trust and engagement with uh, folks who are First Nations, that being comfortable to share of ourselves, to do some self-disclosure, to offer information about our own path and our own experiences uh, can go a long way in terms of building that rapport. And so it just got me thinking about that kind of dichotomy between what I kind of knew and understood from my social work practice and motivational interviewing and what I was learning 
um, from our elder. And it so it just prompted me to ask that question is just how do we kind of marry these two thoughts that made lots of sense to me, um, but I was just kind of feeling a little conflicted about my own thoughts and, and really wanted to hear from others in terms of how they balance those different perspectives. So intriguing on so many levels, but Michelle, I wanted to hear a little bit from you too and uh, your involvement with all this and uh, just a, a quick intro of, you, of your sorts of involvements as well as your sorts of curiosities and what you've experienced with this. Sure. So my name is Michelle and currently right now I'm doing my practicum placement with Diana's department for a master's of social work. And one of the learning goals was to participate in motivational interviewing and also, but bringing in cultural sensitivity and safety for families who do come into the center. I do currently work here as well within the indigenous services. So that includes myself being a support and navigator for indigenous families that come into the building. So I shared this office with Elder Mary, and we um, had a bit of discussions earlier, Diana and I, about, you know, researching and developing cultural sensitivity and safety when it comes to motivational interviewing. So right now I'm researching and compiling some information to present on June 14th to for our Breakfast at Sky Center presentation. So thank you. Thank you for for being here. As I listen to you talk, both of you, I have this, uh, that realization again, having had some of these really good conversations this week on similar topics. Uh, it's amazing how little I know when I feel like I've learned so much <laughs> at the same time, just yeah. because I just have to even start from a place of understanding my own privilege. When I think about research, when I think about brain science, some of those things just those in themselves put us in a different biased perspective, a different perspective. So that's I just want to acknowledge that um, as I move into some of my thoughts uh, right out of the gate. One of the things that I think a niche that I know we've developed in the world of motivational interviewing is our obsession with fidelity to motivation as an evidence-based practice. I think what drew me, because I'm an MSW, <laughs> into motivational interviewing is because it is such a heart of a social work perspective for me. So the compassion the empathy, the, you know, really empowering people from what we think of with comprehensive empowerment um, and less about rescuing people. And, and how do you build that sense of self-efficacy? How do we build that sense of personal agency? And here's where I think it's interesting when we look at it from a, an evidence-based practice or a fidelity perspective, which again, I keep thinking about there's, that's a very specific lens to look at things through is what I talked about when I'm working with people in the peer support world um, as a peer support specialist world is how invaluable it is for self-disclosure, for cultures, for communities, for societies, that self-disclosure is part of interface. And when you look at human dynamic from human to human cross-culturally, when we self-disclose, there's an aspect of that that is more self-centered in our disclosure because we're talking by definition about ourselves which is not wrong and it's not bad there can be bonding that happens in that process the basic structure of motivational interviewing is helping the individual resolve their own ambivalence so it's more other person centered 
in that process. So it, one doesn't trump the other one by any stretch that there is such high levels of healing and utility in both perspectives. But I think when we go to measure something, we try to keep it like, what are we actually measuring? And that's helpful for me when I look at motivational learning is what are we measuring? We're measuring a method to help someone change behavior. So when you think about disclosure and peer and that kind of exchange between two people, there's power, there's healing that can happen from that. It may not be focused intentionally on a specific behavior change. So it helps kind of get clear about why are we measuring and what are we measuring and what's the ultimate outcome from that. So the one other thing that I'll add and then have you both jump in as well too is I've been using this a lot lately in terms of helping people understand what accurate empathy is and helping people move what I keep saying is light years beyond reflective listening is to be able to be in a state of equipoise and try to keep your bias out of an equation. And I talk because I love traveling to different cultures that I, I take a perspective that I just want to sit on my hands and observe for as long as I'm there for the majority of the time, because I'm too ignorant to have an opinion of what's going on. And to me, that's the, that's the spirit or that's the way of being that I want to enter for empathy into motivational interviewing is I'm entering somebody else's worldview and it would be arrogant and ignorant for me to start making assumptions or reflecting things based on my own bias, which increases the potential for resistance to happen. I just want to lay that as kind of construct that we can, you know, talk about and reconstruct. But that's what I look at when I think of the difference between self-disclosure and motivational interviewing. I think there's a, especially what you are articulating, Diana, is, is there's this fundamentally profound respect for the other individual. But then what is, what's the intention from there? What's, what are we looking to, you know, have exchange from there? So I'll just, I'll stop there, but that's, that's kind of my initial response. Hmm. Thoughts, reactions, questions? So <clears throat> I'm going to just jump in to say how interesting it is to think of this sense of what is self-disclosure, what is culturally appropriate, what is safe, what is rapport. The, the definitions of these things matter because, Casey, you were saying it can be, or I'm interpreting, that it can be valuable to self-disclose. Is that necessarily empathy to self-disclose. Well, there could be a, a discussion there depending on how you wanted to. Could it be building rapport like Diana was talking about? Completely. Now, how culturally relevant is it to completely not include yourself at all? That might not be as culturally relevant, which to me speaks to Casey, what you were talking about of what's your intent? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to make it completely about the other person, about the you? Are you trying to make it about me relating to you or am I, and then the we with us. And so what is my intent in what I'm doing that you were alluding to there? And when you talk about this in trainings, that's really helpful for me. And then I'd love to hear Dana, you and Michelle get into where you see the rub or the dichotomy or where you see popping in and out of MI, if that's, or just your experience. But the, the idea with this is that there is a context of relationship. I actually pulled up um, a sense of what is me relating to you, Casey, that you talk about 
is different than the sense that we're all talking with each other right now. And that's called that therapeutic relationship, right? In the, in the research. And so I was pulling up this Dr. Teresa Moyer's article from 2014 called uh, the relationship in motivational interviewing. And it says, MI occurs within a relational context of empathy and acceptance. And this interpersonal foundation is seen as both an essential ingredient of the method as well as a facilitative condition for evoking language in favor of change. And so I wanted to bring that up, Casey, because I think you can have the intention of making that all about the other person and not needing to include self-disclosure. There is something about this spatial, psycho-whatever space we're sharing that you could call a relationship. I just think it's important to separate those two things, to recognize that relationship seems to be more transcendently encompassing and self-disclosure is so specific with under that, you know, as, as you taught me, maybe umbrella. So I just wanted to throw that out there that MI includes a therapeutic relationship, but that doesn't inherently mean self-disclosure per se. And I thought that was important to point out. But um, I was just wondering, you know, if Casey, you had thoughts or Tammy or particularly Michelle and Diana, your kind of sense of where is that dichotomy? Where is that rub and how have you navigated it? And what do you what do you do with that? I'm curious, Diane and Michelle, what are your thoughts around this? Yeah, I guess I got lots of thoughts. So, so sorry about being very articulate at the moment, but uh, a couple of things that come to my mind is just when you talk about that intent, the, the intent of the relationship, the intent about this being about uh, the families that we're serving and, and, and working with. When I think about some of the, um, rules that I was kind of brought up in social work in terms of self-disclosure, I think it was a real inherent effort to kind of get away from kind of a colonized kind of perspective where we would see ourselves in that expert role and um, using, you know, that self-disclosure as a way of, of putting ourselves in that expert role. So I really like, you know, the pieces around MI that, that take us out of that expert role supporting people in, in in finding their own reasons for change and and motivations for change and i think that um that when we think about it from a cultural perspective that when we are choosing to do some self-disclosure that it is about joining and building that therapeutic relationship as as john has um, mentioned and it's and it's about for the benefit of the client opposed to any self-serving kind of interest of promoting my own expertism in something. So those are just some of the thoughts that, you know, as you're speaking, those are some of the things that are popping into my head. Michelle, what are your thoughts? I was more drawn to your question on context of relationship. And I feel like with Indigenous people, we might have different views and expectations when it comes to building relationships, keeping that in mind. So self-disclosure, when you're doing it therapeutic um, areas or in a setting, it's very different. And um, what comes to my mind is when you are building relationships with Indigenous people and you want to get some trust build some trust. Um, I know one of the first, it's more like a cultural expectation or protocol is you say who you are and who your family is and where you're from. Like that is something important. So 
do we see that in Western medical fields where a doctor may come into a room and say, hey, I'm this, this is my name, this is my family, and this is where I'm from. Like, no, that's, that's very, it's very opposite. So, you know, um, when I think of relationship building, it's more than just in between one person and another. Um, I always Mm -hmm. have that in the back of my mind that there's more to that when it comes to um, Indigenous ways of building relationships. What I appreciate so much too, because we talk about this quite a bit, is so much of what we do, what we all do, is based on Western medical model. There's an intervention, we're getting paid, there's a diagnosis. So it just sets a different context for what our interface is going to be about. And that's why I have such an appreciation of what you shared with that. It's why for me, it it is helpful to set that context in terms of if my role is to facilitate a behavior change, which is a very specific thing, usually in a medical model, which may or may not have something to do with healing from a more indigenous perspective. I mean, this is where you start to see these either interfaces or clashes with two different perspectives on what's going on because so much Western medical model is we don't self-disclose because we're the expert and this is about you and and in some communities that's not a healing perspective <laughs> that's just a that's a separateness perspective or a hierarchical perspective depending on the culture um which i think this is where it gets really interesting in terms of what is my role if my role is to if i'm being asked to help somebody with their smoking or their substance use or you know these other issues that they're coming for and that's my role in that what are we trying to orchestrate are we creating a safe place for healing are we creating uh here are mechanics we know that help the human brain, human brain, navigate their own ambivalence based on their own value set? Um, or am I doing an intervention, which is going to be more of a Western medical model perspective? So I think that's why this context is so fascinating to me, because it depends on which lens you're looking for and what outcome are we looking for on a micro level or a macro level outcome, depending on that individual or that individual within their community or within their family. Yeah, that was the mind-blowing thing that Michelle you just dropped for me that I could I could pontificate on here. I want to string it back to something Casey said and then string it back to that. Casey, you t- use the words being invited to help someone with this and it goes back to a metaphor we had talked about on a plane many years ago of our many geeked out conversations on planes of being a buoy getting kicked when they come in and and that you're being that buoy in the water responding to being kicked even if it's court mandated they're showing up and you're getting kicked and the reason that's coming to mind is there's this sense about being with someone that inherently there's something going on there to see them that you're being invited into there seems to be that seems to be true to some degree then there seems to be truth i don't know to what michelle you were bringing up that they're inherent to humans needs to be some sense of trust in this something that's here and what we're all kind of alluding to is psychological safety trust and psychological safety in this kind of influential dynamic that we could call a a healing relationship or a therapeutic relationship. That seems to be, for me at least, in my limited perspective, transcendently true. Now that to me is almost like this top of the mountain, like we use Focus Mountain, 
uh, sort of transcendent values almost across cultures. Now, how we get there, like the trails up, may or may not align with certain approaches, depending on, I think, our culture, our life experience. What you were saying, Michelle, that really blew my mind is that maybe the ways in which to navigate trust and psychological safety in the ways you were describing take this more encompassing container of who you are, your family, and how you fit to influence me to feel safe and trust you. It's just this really, like you were saying, Casey, macro level compared to our focus in that moment with the Western container focus on you right now in this moment. Um, let's get efficient and effective at this versus this macro of how do you fit in the world and how do I see that for us to begin? And it's just such different, interesting lenses to go about trust, psychological safety, and then the healing process that can be more efficient or less efficient in this process, depending on what resonates with that person and how mindful the practitioner is. So that was just, those were just some thoughts I had. I don't know if anyone had thoughts or reactions, but I, that just blew my mind to think about what is the container in which I'm experiencing this person on this level or this focus. <sighs> Any I, can thoughts? React, I can see thoughts in both of your brains. Yeah. I see thoughts in everybody's <laughs> brains. So what, I'm sorry, did I have a question? What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? Just react to that. I liked a lot of the the words that you said, John, and it, it, one of the things that, um, you know, that you reiterated that Casey had mentioned, like just being invited in and, and how important that is. Um, and, you know, we see it's unfortunately so many times where people might um, come and see us once or twice and then they stop coming and we wonder where we've missed the mark. Like, we, you know, what happened there? And, and it feels like um, we really need to spend a bit more time kind of reflecting on that and, and seeing what we can can do a little bit different. And I, and I wonder, um, this conversation's kind of prompted for me some, some curiosity about it, you know, maybe, maybe where we're missing the mark sometimes is what you've just described there in terms of that micro and macro and how we've perhaps failed to establish, uh, the connection or the trust or the relationship that, you know, we wanted to, um, you know, in those first one or two sessions and, and, and perhaps that's, you know, that, you know, seeing ourselves in that small, you know, kind of Western, you know, kind of container, um, you know, could be that factor that has been kind of off-putting and, and where people just didn't feel engaged enough or, or that this process was going to be helpful enough um, mm. for them to keep coming back. So that's just something that I want to kind of continue thinking about as we move forward. I find it interesting. I don't have that much knowledge when it comes to MI. So a lot of my experiences and um, teaching so far are more for research or like in the academic field. When I think of relationship building and holistic methods of working with in social work practices, bringing that decolonization and indigenous perspective to many areas within, you know, not just work, but, you know, different areas of practices in the health field. So, uh, yeah, it's interesting because I feel like when you say this containment and, you know, you're bringing in these different ideas, I always go back to the medicine wheel. So the medicine wheel teachings where you do, uh, as an Indigenous social worker, I try to incorporate that. So 
it's not just when you say I come from a, a place of trying to, you know, the human brain going through that route, a medical um, model of therapy. I feel I'm always looking at the medicine wheel where I think of emotional, call spiritual and cognitive health when it comes to not as my role as a social worker, but interacting with other uh, people and clients. Here's what I think is so interesting when you see these either intersections or, or crosswalks or, or conflicts with these different ways of different perspectives of looking at it. Again, when I think of motivational learning, I keep thinking about it's a helping an individual resolve ambivalence about a specific behavior. Like this is such a specific, it's like a gamma knife for, uh, you know, it's why are we using this tool for this intervention? It's so I think this is where it can be. I think it's important when we talk about motivation as a way of being or the spirit of motivation, I think is incredibly important, but I think we can have the spirit of motivational interviewing and be very ineffective at behavior change, which means that it's not motivational interviewing. So I think this is why it's such a fascinating conversation because it's where do these elements intersect and what both of you have talked about, but one of the things that you'd said, Diana, that, that sparked one of the ways that I like to talk about motivational interviewing from that perspective. And I think this is where it gets into the disclosure aspect of it is I'll tell people that I'm training. My ideal as a using motivational interviewing is when the person forgets that I'm in the room, because what I want access to is that undefended, unedited brain that's laying with their head on the pillow or laying under the bridge or laying in their tent or laying under the stars when no one else is around. That's the brain I want access to in motivational interviewing because that's where the purity of where their values are and where their ambivalence resides. So as soon as I start to self-disclose, it breaks that spell. It could create a different spell that can be healing and magical, but I don't get access to that unedited, undefended brain because as soon as somebody feels my presence, their brain, their spirit interacts differently than when they're in their own space. And that own spaceness is what I try to create in an MI-based conversation, which negates the Western medical model because I'm not the expert in the room. I'm actually not even in the room. I'm, I'm using their brain and their language and their emotion the most accurate I can to how does it feel to be in their shoes and where does the, where does the internal conflict reside? Where is the ultimate destination beyond the behavior? And this is something that's different in the way that we, that I've trained in motivational interviewing or the way I teach it is it's so far beyond the target behavior. It's what are your deeper values because your deeper values are going to help you get clear about the target behavior. Because even the Western idea in motivational interviewing is we, you cannot do motivational interviewing. I used to have my own allergic reaction to this of you can't do motivational interviewing unless there's a target behavior. And it's like, uh, I, I conceptually, I understand that concept. But we also need context for what does this behavior mean to this individual and what are their values around it? It's not just about quitting smoking. It's not mm. just about reducing alcohol use. It's not just about domestic violence. It's contextual as well, too. And I can understand their target behavior but it's going to be harder to get to the resolution of ambivalence if I'm not as aware of where their cultural perspective is coming from, where that individual individualness is coming from and the collectiveness, depending on the culture, is coming from. Mm -hmm. So they can resolve that ambivalence to impact that behavior. So that's where I look at from the self-disclosure that it's not right or wrong. It's not good or bad. It's where and where does it reside within motivational learning? In my vantage point, my narrow point on motivational interviewing is when I put myself in the equation, it increases the potential for energy to go between two things, which can be healing or it can be damaging. Um, 
And then when I look at it from a trauma-informed perspective, it's the same thing I think of is when they have to pay attention to my reality, am I getting the pureness of their reality, whether it's been damaged or not damaged? So that, and do I need to, if you self-disclose, am I supposed to support you in that self-disclosure? And what if I disagree with that self-disclosure? And if I'm in the in a position where I don't feel like I have the authority, then I have to accept that that self-disclosure. And so I always take that into account when I'm looking from a trauma-informed perspective as well, too, with power differential. And and if they if it is a wisdom keeper, um, and my experience feels somewhat different than that, I know there's space created for that. But then where does that put me if I've experienced trauma before as well, too, with yeah. my own experience? Do I defer to somebody else's experience and lived experience over my own lived experience? if I've experienced trauma. So these are all the things that I think make this a wildly complex um, conversation. And, and, and that's just from a, a privileged white male perspective. I mean, that's literally everything I said. It's, so it's just like, now you take all these other perspectives into it. And it's like, this is extremely nuanced and extremely complex. I, I just got to jump. There's so much riches there, but there are a few concepts that are really critical there, Casey purity of influence is a huge for me underlying foundation we're talking about how pure is this person's thought in that moment to their thoughts outside of that moment and it's so interesting when you pair that casey with what you use the word context because we are in the context of living with other humans in this world we are not in the context of purely living on our own. So I'm really trying to stretch my mind right now to that macro and sense of that because where I go is to something even in a Western model of something like gestalt therapy that we were talking a little bit about before that has an underlying belief. I don't know how the clinical research compares to something like MI, particularly in indigenous cultures or First Nations. However, where my mind goes, is it that we get this pure access in that moment when they're outside of all that influence in that moment in time? I have a belief that that's definitely true, Casey. I mean, I've been influenced by you and, and other people in the Western. I believe that that's true. Now, there could be some beliefs and or some other things going on that the very fact that we're in the context of being influenced by other humans, that I as the healer can be giving feedback about my experience when you say these things that might be like when they go outside of the context of that room that they get feedback and i don't know i'm just stretching i'm throwing this out there to try to stretch my brain that maybe it's a smaller container of feedback that they're getting or bouncing off of that might be important just like being out in the real world versus a pureness of this. And I don't know. I just, I, I have more of the belief of what you're talking about, Casey, but I'm trying to stretch to maybe that's where it comes from is fitting this larger experience into a moment of healing with feedback. I don't know, but I'm curious for Michelle or Diana, any thoughts you have related to all that? Yeah, that was a lot. You're you're right, John. Lots of really rich concepts and uh, things to think about there. What's really resonating for me, Casey, is when you're talking about, um, you know, wanting just that purity of their own thoughts and and getting um, us as a provider, practitioner, just kind of out of the picture as, as much as possible. So that gives me a lot to kind of think about what that might actually look like and how to kind of get there. 
I guess I'm just really appreciating that and, and just how rich then that information is at understanding people's uh, values and beliefs and what's, you know, really important to them without the interference of um, our own biases and judgments that despite, you know, best efforts to, <laughs> to hold those things in check, come out in our privilege. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, so I yeah, really need to kind of think a little bit more um, about that. And, and I think that's, uh, you know, kind of bang on. And then I think a little bit about like the stages of MI and I guess my, where my head is kind of going and, and hearing, you know, what Michelle has suggested too, in terms of how, um, in First Nations, uh, you know, how respectful and appropriate it is to introduce yourself in a way that talks about your family and where you're from. And, and so I'm, I'm thinking about this, conceptualizing this in terms of like, you know, in that, in that initial engagement stage and, and what, what's culturally appropriate and, and what's going to build, what's going to be most effective to build that trust and build that rapport. And then as we go through, um, you know, those therapeutic processes and, and getting more into evoking, how do we make ourselves as small as possible, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if yeah. not invisible, mm-hmm. um, so that, mm-hmm. you know, it's really their voice and, and their values um, that are kind of at the, at the forefront. So, yeah, so I, I think I'm just kind of wondering if, if it kind of starts with more of this back and forthing, um, sharing, gauging, trusting, learning, and then, and then how that shifts kind of as the process unfolds. So, yeah, those are just kind of what's coming to my mind. Michelle, you, had, you have a thought going on there? I'm just learning so much. And, um, you know, I'm going to have a thought in an hour and be like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but right now, yeah, uh, it's just really interesting to hear it. And, of course, like learn from all you guys, like so much more of MI that, you know, like I can read um, about MI, but when you guys are talking about it so quickly and, you know, eloquently and like what's, what's so everything's involved, right? It's just, it just seems like there's like a lot involved when, once you're in the process. I agree. And I, the, the one thing that I, that I would almost, that I want to put out there from what you're talking about and Diane, actually what you just referenced as well too, I started using this explanation. I always start the explanation by saying, if somebody would have told me this when I was starting my MSW program or my BSW program, my undergrad in psych, I wouldn't have believed them when I heard them say it. And so when I hear myself saying it, it's like, it's so fascinating to hear myself say this, but it's, this is something that you're not going to hear taught in motivational interviewing. But it's something through lived experience of 35 years in social work and in training at my for 20 years, something that I've experienced and, and makes sense to me. And so this is the way I teach in this day, almost exactly what you were talking about in the interaction piece of it. So if Tammy comes into me, she's experienced trauma and she's coming to me as a clinician. What I was trained to do was build trust and relationship, right? And it makes sense. We hear that and we think, of course, that's what we're going to do. And then what ends up happening is I work to build trust and relationship with Tammy, who's experienced trauma. And little by little, she starts to roll out that red carpet of trust and relationship towards me. And I'm able to use that and work with her to do some of the trauma-informed work that needs to be done that she's requested, right? That is part of her journey. And I said, the thing about this that we accept or know that it's part of the process is that 
as we get closer to titrating services, there's going to be a point in time where Tammy says, Casey, this has been really helpful. Could I just text you at some point or could we just go out to coffee sometime after this is over? We've all experienced if you if you've ever gone down the path of trust and, and relationship building and then we have to go, well, no, I, I, we can't really do that. Um, you're more than welcome to come to services whenever you need to. You're more than welcome to do this. So this is a cultural thing, Western medical model that I think mm -hmm. bumps up against. But from this perspective, you're talking about, about the engagement with the population you serve. Here's what I always think of. So Tammy rolls up that red carpet that my feet prints are all over for trust and relationship. And there's, there's a, a micro message in her thought process that I can't really, 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 really trust anybody. Because I told her to trust and build a relationship with me, but we just can't have it outside of these walls. And I think that's a very culturally odd perspective outside of a Western medical model. Um, that seems very almost disrespectful in a way. And I said, I didn't even know this other corridor existed. And so this is why I explained part B. And I, this is how I help people differentiate in motivationing the difference between relationship and trust building and what I think of as deep empathetic engagement. So scenario B, Tammy comes into me and she's experienced trauma and she's coming for service. And every time she opens her mouth, Tammy feels more heard and understood than she's ever felt before. Like deeply, profoundly heard and understood. And little by little, she rolls out that red carpet of trust and relationship. In MI, I never need to step on that. I don't need her to trust me, and I don't need a relationship with her for her to resolve her ambivalence about her own issues. Instead, what happens is the more she discloses and the more she gets clear about her ambivalence, the more that I reflect what her deeper values are and help her use her own values to strengthen her executive functioning, to the place, and this is what I started to experience, is then Tamu would come in at some point and say, Casey, you're a nice enough guy, but honestly, I don't think I need to come in here anymore. I think I've got this. Because every time she moves in a healing direction, I use strategic affirmations to empower her, not because of the work we did together, but because her brain is doing that repair work and I'm present to help orchestrate some of that language in her own thought process. And so she rolls up that red carpet that I never stepped on of trust and relationship and puts it in her back pocket. And she ends services when she feels it's time for her because now she's repaired some of that. And I never try to build trust or relationship with her. She, the byproduct may be that she trusts me. The byproduct may be that she has some sense of relationship or connection with me. But in, in my version in Casey's version of motivational reviewing, I do nothing to feed that. I don't need to feed that actively for her to resolve her ambivalence. So this is why when you get into the self-disclosure, the level of healing that can happen with the self-disclosure that your elders talking about is profound healing that can happen. And so that's why it's not a better, worse, does it fit, does it not fit? It's just a separate thing that creates healing uh, and connection. But when I go into the purity of the way my brain keeps trying to striate down, what are we trying to accomplish in motivational interviewing? to help resolve ambivalence and people move in a healthy direction that aligns with their own value set, their own cultural values, their own individual value set. The more I have influence in that, the more contaminated I think the conversation can become. So, which doesn't make it wrong and it doesn't make it bad. It just makes it different. And this helps me get clear about what is the purpose of an evidence-based practice of motivational interviewing, which is really individual focused, not relationship focused. So, so I, that's kind of the way I kind of wrap up the this conversation that I could go into for six hours at least, uh, <laughs> at least six hours. Um, but but for me, when you said that, Diana, like when you're thinking where the rubber hits the road with the population we serve, and where we see a little bit of titration after a couple of interventions or a couple of meetings, 
we're just self-assessing that. What 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 can we do better to make sure that they know that there's access to service and resource and, and people that really want to help them evolve to the direction they want to evolve? And if we're not doing it to the best of our ability, we're doing the self-assessment of what 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 other options are there. So I would just offer that up as a mm-hmm. one more thing to noodle on um, mm-hmm. in the process. So much here. There's so much richness. It's like, I want to just keep talking so bad about this because it's like, there's so much to learn. Casey, you alluded to so many things of what's pure and all the stuff about getting into, well, me as the expert bringing this in and uh, Diana, you of like, well, can we ever truly rid ourselves of what we're bringing in as a privilege or whatever? And that power position. And there's so much there and there's so many thoughts. It's just, oh my gosh, it's so good. But um there is one thing I, I want to bring up as we're bringing to a close is this, you know, Casey, you're alluding to attachment theory. And there's so many other things we're getting into that we can um, uh, riff off of in other podcasts or Michelle, if you think about it for an hour or multiple days and want to come back on and talk more, we can we can have you on. I just wanted to point people to uh, if you would like any sort of questions or anything to explore like this. If you don't join the Facebook group, you can go to. Uh, or you can send in questions at Casey at IFIOC.com for us to dive deeper into. I just really wanted to highlight this last component that I don't know where the truth is here, but there seems to be something meaningful about working through discomfort and overcoming things. There seems to be something in the research with that. And I don't know, especially from my limited perspective, where this comes in for practitioners or people of different First Nations or Indigenous cultures, but how do you find that thread of I'm comfortable, safe, and trusting, but also challenge possibly, and this is my bias, with practitioners that might be focused on self-disclosure because that's what they're more comfortable with and they know how to do that versus maybe the depth, and I'm still working on mine to self-disclose, empathy of trying to go deeper and more powerful to get those yes, right, exactly's from people. And maybe there could be, I'm wondering if there could be more discomfort in the level of depth of empathy, Casey, you were talking about and working on that, than the discomfort and more the comfort of self-disclosing immediately. I could be wrong in there, but my life experience points to more comfort in self-disclosure than comfort and empathy. And I just wanted to bring that up just because that points people to something to work on as a skill set, if they wish, with some of the things we provide either in our intro training or other people provide in MI that relate to something that gives you power to see if, like Diana, you brought up, maybe I could go deeper with them in empathy or no, I really have worked on that. I've sought feedback. I know I've gotten feedback that I can be proficient in my empathy And this must be about this other cultural thing. And I know within myself that I've really pushed myself to that empathy and just that clarity of power that you have. I just want to give that as an invitation to people to think about, are you acting out of comfort or clarity that you really have worked on this skill set or whatever that would be? And those are just some thoughts I thought would be important to bring power back to people if that's valuable in any sort of way. The last thing I'll say is hopefully we're all getting that at the end of the day, MI is communicating. You have what you need and you have answers within you worth discovering. And I wanted to bring that up. I think that was Terry Moyers. Some, some amazing researcher wrote that. 
And hopefully we end with that sense of intent that we all have for MI, regardless of exactly how it gets expressed. So Diana, really appreciate all the perspectives you're bringing in, and especially Michelle, you as well, and uh, pontificate on it, bring back perspective, whatever you need to do. Really appreciate both of your, your time and energy here. Was there anything either you'd like to finish up to add and or where can people find you if they'd like to seek you out? Yeah, well, thank you for this fantastic conversation. Sometimes we, we seek answers and we, we find more questions. <laughs> but I think that is the journey that we're on. And I think that's what we're challenged to do is to, um, you know, here uh, we're at the Rehab Center for Children. Again, we're, we're striving to provide the best possible uh, care to folks that come to need and, and want our services and, and learning how to do that from an MI perspective, learning how to do that from a culturally safe perspective continues to be where we're going to continue to grow and challenge ourselves. So you've planted lots of seeds with lots of great nuggets and ideas that I know Michelle and I will will take away and share with others to continue to grow and, and learn about uh, how these kind of concepts are not necessarily mutually exclusive, but where they partner together and, and really have the best outcomes for folks. Love that. Thank you. And I guess in terms of uh, reaching us, probably I could provide my email address as you know the, the best source if people do want to, to learn more about what we're doing here or have anything to add to the conversation. So it is my first initial, which is D, followed by my last name, which is Renaud, R-E-N-A-U-D, at rccinc.ca. So drenault at rccinc.ca. So thank you all very, very much. Thank you for making time for this. This was, this was wonderful. Thank you. And the last thing I just want to add is again, Diana found us on our motivational interviewing every day Facebook group. It's a free public group. You can just join. We bring up interesting conversations and topics like Diana did. We share tips on there. Um, so it's just, just a good place to keep MI at the forefront of your everyday. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. See you next time. Thank you for listening to the Communication Solution Podcast. As always, this podcast is all about you. So if you have questions, thoughts, topic suggestions, ideas, please send them our way at Casey at IFIOC.com. That's C-A-S-E-Y at IFIOC.com. For more resources, feel free to check out IFIOC.com. We also have a public Facebook group called Motivational Interviewing Every Day. We have an amazing blog and we have lots of communication tips on our website. In addition to all these amazing resources, we do offer online public courses on our website on motivational interviewing and effective communication strategies. Thanks for listening to the Communication Solution by IFIOC.